welcome back. It's time for Customers Who Click. Another amazing brand guest for you today with a fascinating story. Eli Packhouse joins me on the podcast to talk about his new product, Instafloss. In this episode, we'll be talking about where the idea came from, how Eli spent years on research and development, and some advice on how brands can crowdfund their way through those initial growth stages, whether that's through sites like Kickstarter or actual equity crowdfunding. Before we get Eli on, if you could do me a huge favour and review the podcast, it'd be much appreciated. Now let's get him on to talk about Instafloss. Hi Eli, thanks for joining me today. Would you mind just um, give us a bit of an introduction to yourself, your background and how you've got to where you are today? Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad to be here. So I'm Eli Paracos. I am an inventor. I started my first company, Singular Sound, with my brother back in 2013. We made music tech products. We came out with eight different blockbuster products. And then in about 2017, I had an idea for a device that could floss your teeth automatically in seconds. And that was too large of an idea to to pass up. So I started a, a second company and we pursued Instafloss and we spent five years developing it. And we've taken pre-orders. We've done quite a few successful campaigns on that and we're launching in just a few months. Awesome. Yeah, sounds good. So you, know, you said okay, it came to you. You made it sound as if it just came to you like that's <laughs> where, where did the idea come from? Like what you know, there's normally a moment that sparks ideas like this. Yeah, absolutely. So all inventions come from a, a need. There is a problem and then there's a device that hopefully solves your problem. And I was preparing for a meeting with my brother. We were eating a bunch of mango and a whole bunch of stuff was stuck between our teeth and we were like running late per usual. And we're just flossing or like, there, there has to be something that can do this automatically. And then within the span of just a couple of weeks, many people came up to me and were like, hey, you make products. I hate flossing. Can you make something that flosses my teeth for me so I don't have to do it? And then I was like, okay, this is, this is rather coincidental. And so I started looking into it and I found out that the problem was actually bigger than I thought. It's, it's not just that people begrudgingly do it. But rather, 70% of Americans regularly skip flossing to the point where they don't floss uh, because it takes too long and it's hard to do correctly and it's painful. And flossing is really an integral part of our, our health. If you have inflammation in your mouth, that has cascading effects for the rest of your health, your heart health, your infl- inflammatory health, joint health, so on, that... I knew that this was perhaps one of the biggest things I could come out with because everybody has teeth, everybody ought to floss, nobody wants to, but they would if it was easy. So if we could make a device that was automatic for them, that would have quite large effects. Yeah, absolutely. So like, how, how, how do you get customers clicking? That's how we start every conversation. I suppose you've, you've done your, your crowdfunding, wasn't it? Yes. So we, we actually did two different types of crowdfunding for Instafloss. The the first was a, a regular like Kickstarter crowdfunding where we are pre-selling the product and we pre-sold $2.5 million worth of Instafloss. So I think that speaks to the idea that... <laughs> it's a decent amount, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, that uh, people are willing, people are excited for it, that sight unseen years in advance, they're willing to put their money down. So, so I'm excited to see where that will go when we actually have products available for them very soon. And the second type of campaign we did was an equity crowdfunding campaign where instead of selling product, we sold uh, shares, essentially. 
And that that one also did very well. It gave us a little bit of extra capital that we needed to start the the manufacturing. So how did we get people to click? So I, you know, I, I definitely think that part of it is we have a device that can automatically floss all of your teeth in 10 seconds. And naively, I thought that would be sufficient to get people to click. And perhaps it was, you know, played a role in it. You know, this is this solves a problem that you hate. Click on it. But one thing we realized when we were doing our initial bursts of ads to get try to get people to click was, you know, we showed people using the device and so on, but people just weren't clicking at the rates that we thought that they would. I'm like, why not? This is an automatic floss. Like, come on, like this is your dream come true. Why aren't you clicking on it? And so we started experimenting with a number of things. And one of the things we experimented with that ultimately made all the difference was we had a CGI uh, rendering showing how it worked. So instead of people putting it in their mouth, and once it's in your mouth, it disappears, right? Like, what's it doing in there? Yeah. No, <laughs> we then we then switched to CGI because it'd be very difficult to do with actual cameras. We switched to CGI and we show it in the mouth using jets of water pulsating from multiple angles, 12 jets per tooth, cleaning underneath the gum line a full 360 degrees around each tooth, getting you know deeper underneath the gum line that string can reach because water molecules are smaller than string molecules. And so we just showed how it worked. And this transformed, you know, the clicks. Like we thought we could show the scientific evidence. You know, we could show that we had greater effects, see that it reduces plaque and gingivitis regular but better than than regular floss, that people are happy, we could show reviews. No, the thing that made the difference in the end that we were doing all sorts of A-B tests was just showing people how it worked. And my speculation as to why this made the difference is because in a way, and just taking a step back from it, a device that can automatically floss your teeth in 10 seconds sounds too good to be true. And so we're almost cursed with the promise of what it does, that the second I see someone saying, oh, this is what it does, and then you just put it in your mouth, I'm like, I don't know, that could be a stick for all I know. <laughs> like, What's it doing in your mouth? I could see you lose that trust. And showing people how it works, it goes from the from the, oh, that must be impossible to, oh, I see it working. Yeah, that would work. Okay, now I'm interested rather than just dismissing it. Yeah, I mean, I suppose on the, the 10 second thing, yeah, it does sound, it sounds ridiculously quick, mm-hmm. right? especially given how long it takes to actually floss. But then even, I suppose maybe maybe people were comparing it to brushing your teeth. Mm-hmm. So even now with uh, like electric toothbrushes, you're still still looking at two minutes. Yeah, at least, yeah. I think it's the recommendation. So people are thinking, well, even even if an electric toothbrush is supposed to make this quicker and better, and that takes two minutes, how can you possibly get down to 10 seconds? The ad side, the, the, the video side, I mean, I don't know what the, the ads are like over there, but here, whenever you get an ad for an electric toothbrush, you get that CGI mm-hmm. video. Right, and it shows you know you can see a tooth that's got a load of plaque around it, right? And it does its like pulsating thing, and it, you see it removing that plaque, and then you've got nice teeth. So that obviously looks a lot more convincing than just seeing someone stick the toothbrush in their mouth, move it around for a bit, and then go, "My teeth are clean." <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and nobody, nobody like you know numbers, which which is what people should probably be basing their purchasing of products on. Like, oh, this actually removed more plaque. This actually reduced more gingivitis. You know, the, I imagine most people are brushing and flossing for the results rather than the experience. 
So, yeah. you know, that those are the sort of things that, that at least I imagine people should base their purchases on. But I mean, even for a toothbrush, like you said, you, you have to see it work and somehow that that's more convincing. So, so I mean, as far as transferable lessons to other products that are not like or oral hygiene, showing is definitely more powerful than telling, I think, regardless of your product. And yeah. you have to be like empathetic to both views of perhaps your claim sounds too good to be true, or perhaps your claim doesn't sound good enough to be interesting. And so it's a, it's a fascinating balancing act to, to experiment. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I've, I've run some tests for clients before where we have kind of after, afterwards, we've realized that the reason we got a negative impact from that test is because we just, we just made it sound too good to be true. Right. You know, when you use phrases, and we didn't use these phrases because these are terrible, but things like, you know, the the best experience you'll ever have mm-hmm. with this sort of product. When you're making these like really, really bold claims that also don't actually tell you anything. Right. It's, it's a phrase that could apply to literally every single brand, at least in that category, if not in the world, right? When someone just says, it's the best thing ever for you. And what's fascinating about that actually is legally that is called puffery and puffery is illegal. So if my device was 30% better than string floss, I legally could not say it is 31% better than string floss because that's, that's a factual claim that is not true, but I could say it is infinitely better, even though that's a hundred percent not true, like infinitely better. That, that doesn't even make sense, but because it's so it's ridiculous, it cannot be construed as a factual claim. And therefore, and therefore it's legal. So you see all sorts of, of, of devices or products out there claiming to be infinitely better, the best, the most amazing, et cetera. And it's legal because it doesn't mean anything, but because it doesn't mean anything, it's also not effective. It doesn't have much impact. And just talking, when you mentioned how this sort of thing can apply to other industries, I think beauty is one that stands out, right? Mm -hmm. It's, you're going to have a much better chance of success. If you show, you know, well, basically a before and after picture, right? Before this person's wearing this makeup and after. Right. And then people can actually see what does this product look like on this person? And they'll go, yeah, okay, cool. That that looks great. That that looks exactly like what I want. But if you just showed a picture of of the makeup, it's, you know, it's, it's, it, it, there's, without going too much into the CRO side of things, right? If, that, that's a checkbox item, right? It's an anxiety thing. It's, you know, looking at that makeup and going, well, what color is it? Okay, fine. Right. It's that color. That looks like the sort of color I want. But what, really what we want to do is hit their desired outcomes, which is the, what's that end result? And that's where the, the actual post usage picture comes in and people say, yes, this person looks amazing. That's how I want to look. Therefore, they're more likely to buy. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, those things can be so deceiving to the point where Facebook has actually banned before and after photos in ads. So like, so like while yes, that, that like really probably convinces people the most because I have a problem. This is supposed to solve it. This is what the solution looks like. I mean, you get, you get that sort of thing all the time in like diet, especially most of those before and after pictures are taken on the same day. You know, you get a person before he ate a big meal, you get good lighting. It's like after then you have him drink like two liters of diet Coke <laughs> and then it like changed the lighting. And then, and then suddenly it's like, this is what it was before I went to the diet and it's like taken in that span of an hour. So I see why they banned it and, and they're probably right for doing that. 
but but it does speak to the mind of the consumer that you have to be showing them that you are there is a problem you are solving it but it's believable that you're solving it yeah yeah absolutely and that's where you know you you'll, you'll get so far by you know with your cgi video with the, with the claims that you're making and they and you know as much scientific data and stuff that you can't put together to try and try, try and prove this but it's then going to be that social proof afterwards where you're getting reviews and testimonials from people saying yeah it's super quick it's super easy my teeth are clean you know if you can get people in reviews stating they've been to their dentist and it's the first time their dentist has said to them oh i see you've been flossing <laughs> yeah. right that that's the sort of review that people would really i think relate to Absolutely. And we actually did see this much, much to my annoyance, actually. <laughs> so my first instinct, we've been doing research on the product for five years. You know, we've done, we've done trials, we've, you know, we've done all sorts of experiments. And so my first instinct was like, look, we have the data, let's, let's show this off. And so on our, in our ads a little bit, but more so on the landing page, I was like citing study after study and, you know, number after number and comparison and like, you know, all sorts of things. And one of the marketing guys like, you know, as an experiment, let's take away like 90% of these studies. And instead of citing the full citation, why don't we just shorten the citation a little bit and and so on and, and focus a little bit more on testimonials. And our conversions went up by a crazy amount. I was not happy about it. I mean, I was happy that our conversions went up, but I was uh, not happy that it wasn't the from the cause of citing the scientific experiments and literature that I thought should be most important yeah i mean i suppose there's there's probably an element of people reading it saying what does this actually mean right yeah uh, you know there's, there's going to be a bit too much scientific jargon or, or whatever but also at the end of the day people want to know there's been results mm -hmm. and those results come from testimonials yeah you know, it's it looks great when you when you're on a website and you see a product that's got fifteen thousand reviews on it mm -hmm. yeah because you think well that's that's fantastic that's that's a huge amount so not only do people like this product, but also it's a decent sized business. You know, they're, they're not going anywhere. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, and that's why you also do need to be careful if you've only got a handful of reviews True. on a product. You know, maybe it's best to not show those reviews yet and, and to you know, push, push the sales a bit more and then and really work, work hard to try and get those reviews from people who mm -hmm. really put extra effort in there. No, ab absolutely. But I suppose, yeah, I mean, yeah, for stuff like this, video reviews are going to work really well. Like you said, maybe not images because it's it's really difficult to show an image of the result of flossing. Well, I mean, y you can. So we actually ran into something regarding the disgust reaction from people where it was a big experiment where it's like, do we show people with gingivitis or plaque or you know other sorts of buildups and then usage of the product and then... Um, you know, the results that they received on the website when some people scrolling, they might be like, you know, some sort of knee jerk reaction and they look at it and they're, they're like, ah, no. I, and again, this was a thing where I was on the wrong side of the speculation and which is why you have to let the sort of AB test data speak for itself. But yeah, actually it was true that the disgust reaction was stronger than the uh, credibility you would see from the before and after. So, so we, we still do show, you know, some sort of comparisons, uh, like also like CGI and stuff like that. But we, we really had to tone down the 
you know the the disgusting elements of of like the shock factor. Yeah, exactly. Some people they just backlick the second they see anything like that, and they're like, "I am not here," you know. <laughs> and a lot of people actually more so than in the other experimental condition. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I suppose it depends what you're seeing, really, doesn't it? And and also, I wonder if it's it's another one of those things that like over sensationalizes it, mm. and. You know, if if someone's not been flossing for a while, and their teeth doesn't look like the horrible, and their mouth doesn't look like that horrible image that you've shown, right? It almost makes them go, "Well, you know, you're just trying to scare me into to doing this, right? I don't floss, I, I, I'm not having that problem, so it can't be that bad, right? So do I? Or it could even be, actually, yeah, I, I just I don't need this product, right? Because I don't have the problem that they're saying this this product solves. True. True. I mean, no. There's a the the one thing that I would say I would, uh, like about A/B tests in general is we know what the results were, but we're still left to speculate as to what caused those results. You know, so so it could very well be that it could be a combination of things. You know, it probably is everybody's got a different reason, but we just see the average average response. Yeah, I mean, also, you know, I've had, I've had this before with tests where you know we we tag up the the actual thing we want people to interact with. So obviously this this is more common, you know, if, if we're if we want people to watch a video or something, we will make sure that we've tagged up the video so that we can actually see the impact it has on conversion. Right. Because you can see, you know, you see the result of the A B test. And, you know, you might find, you know, w- one example could be that the the variant with the video was a losing test and and performed worse. But then when you look at the data and engagement with the video, you see that conversion for people who viewed the video goes up. Hmm. Right. So that tells you, well, the video then probably has a positive impact, but for some reason, maybe the video placement was wrong or, you know, something else is going wrong. Also, you might find that the varied conversion rate goes up, but literally no one clicked on the video. Right. So why, why has conversion gone, gone up if no one has actually interacted with that? Well, I mean, those who are interacting with it tend to, and, but then, and then that could also be a lot of variables. Like it could be better selecting. Or it could be that it's not any better selecting, but those who happen to get it, you know, the the video was better at converting. So you have to keep as many variables the same as possible. That's often really, really hard to do. Really hard to do. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why you have to drive quite a bit of traffic mm-hmm. through tests. You know, you could always end up in a situation where if you don't run enough, enough data through it, you just happen to get a bunch of people who were ready to buy mm-hmm. through one variant. And they're going to skew those results. If, if you sent ten, you know, if you sent ten people through each right. variant, you might get five people who convert on one side and one on the other. But once you get to a thousand people on each side, it could be, you know, one hundred one people convert versus ninety nine. Yeah, I mean, it all depends on how certain you want to be. Like, how confident do you want to be in your results? Is fifty percent? Is are you comfortable with just slightly over a coin flip? Is for fifty one to forty nine good enough for you? We're just doing better than chance. Or do you need to be ninety nine percent certain? Like, like that's that's kind of like your your risk tolerance because sometimes you have a whole list of A/B tests you want to do. You're like, we want to test X, X, and Y, you know, and Z. And it's like, well, if we wait until we're like ninety nine percent confident on on test A, we won't get around to testing B and C. But for ninety five percent confident, or even just ninety percent confident, then you know you could have better. You could experiment with more things. And then you get to the question of what's better, to be 99% certain about one thing or 90% certain about three things. 
And so there's an argument to be made for being less confident in your A-B test results as long as you get to run more A-B tests that you believe are of similar magnitude in, in, in their effects. And so if you're 90% confident on three things that are equally important, it might be more have, have greater results than being 99% certain on one thing that has the same magnitude as the other two. Yeah, absolutely. It comes down to basic risk tolerance, doesn't it? If, if you're happy to accept that there is a risk in doing that, but you would rather push more tests through, then you know that's that's absolutely fine. And also on, on lower traffic websites, it, it can make sense to do that. And you could also look at you can also look at different different goals for a mm-hmm. test, right? So you know you might say, well, it's going to take us ages to get to a good confidence of checkout, right? So let's just say, well, all we're testing for is add to cart. Right. Let's try and push more people through to add to cart, and then we we'll, we we'll use checkout as a as a backup because obviously. What you don't want to happen is get you get ninety five percent confidence on people adding to cart, but actually your conversion rate <laughs> at the end has plummeted. So if you're not paying attention to that, yeah, I, I mean, and, and if your if your traffic on your website is really low and you need to ex- start somewhere, you're like, look, I need to improve something. I just don't have the traffic to even test add to cart. You could even start with like how many people are scrolling below the fold or or average time on website or something like that. You know. Uh, granted, that's like a tough place to be in, where like those are the things you're testing. But but if you have to, that's that's a that's a place you can start. That's even earlier. Yeah, absolutely. I know we, we, we've kind of touched on this a bit with the the, the scientific data and the, the comparison pictures and things. But what other challenges do you think that are involved in selling products like these? You mean from like a a, a marketing perspective rather than like a regulatory <laughs> perspective? I mean, it could be regulatory because that's that's obviously going to impact on resetting and things as well. So, yeah. So, was, you know, what challenges have you had in in trying to get get the message out there and, and sell this product? So, I mean, I think I think that was we've had, we've had a number of challenges in terms of of I would say like the probably the most salient thing is that it's a pre order. You know, people just by and large don't like pre orders. I've done multiple pre order campaigns before for various products, and I find that the conversion rate like on average is a fourth of what the conversion rate would be if you were, had available like two day shipping. Now, obviously this changed based on the product and how much they believe in your pre-order, et cetera. But like a forex different tends to, a difference tends to be pr- pretty average. You know, on one hand, it's like challenging that we have to deal with something that has a four times less conversion rate because it's a pre-order. On the other hand, if you, if you could manage to turn a profit with pre-orders, then you know you've got something solid, which is which is why I, I I strongly believe that if you are launching a product, you really should attempt to run a pre-order campaign, even if you don't need to, because that is a trial by fire. Like that will make sure that you have efficient, you know, well-converting messaging images every step of the funnel. Like you can do your targeting and everything like that, because you're you're dealing. You know, it's like you're running a marathon with a hundred pounds tied to your back. And that way, as soon as as soon as you actually can take off that that weight, and you can really launch. Um, uh, so, there's a lot of things that that we have done that improve improves specific pre order conversion rates. You know, offering refunds up to sixty days after delivery, warranties, special prices. The credit is super important. Showing people use the product, how it works, scientific studies, etc. So that way, they know it's not just something on the internet, but like, look, look who's involved, look which scientists are involved, you know, look what, what people have to say and, and using the prototype and being open with your your community. 
Another thing that I think is, has been like a, a strong part of our success in our pre-order campaign at which also, which, which is good, which is a good idea in general, but specifically for the pre-orders is we knew once in order to have a, a strong pre-order campaign, you have to have a strong day one, because if you don't launch strong in day one, it's going to be a feedback loop of failure. But if you have a strong launch of day one, it's going to be a feedback loop of success. People want to pre-order things that they feel confident are going to actually be delivered. Oh, so is this is this using a a crowd like a crowd? Correct. Yes, like a like Kickstarter, right? Where where you can actually see how many people have placed an order, how much how much money has gone towards the goal. Precisely. That's that's, that's exactly what I'm talking about. And so. One thing you want to do is you want to build up your your email list for people who are going to respond on that first day. However, email lists can go stale. And even if they don't go stale, Gmail can put you in the promotions tab. And if you're in the promotions tab, you might as well have not sent that email by and large. So we wanted to accomplish two things. We wanted to not go stale. We want to get out of the promotions tab. And so what we had was if somebody signed up to the email, they would receive a personal plain text email from me saying, hey, thank you for signing up. This is where we are in the development process. Here's some photos. What do you not like about flossing and how can we make flossing better for you? So just a, a pointed question, like you signed up for this, we're making this product for you. What do you want? And we got a crazy amount of responses, a very high response rate. People would write in and the one rule was never let an email go unanswered. If if we respond to a question, what do you want? What do you want us to solve regarding your pain points and flossing? And they were to respond, we would have to respond to that email. And if they were to respond to that email, we would have to respond to this email. And what that does, number one, it keeps them engaged. So when you launch, they're like, I was part of this process. I've been talking to these people. I have a relationship with these people. And they get their friends involved. But also it gets you out of the promotions tab because the promotions you know, people tend to not have conversations with promotional emails. So if if you have a high percentage yeah. of people having conversations with you, you're out of the promotions tab. That is in part why I think, you know, obviously there's a lot of variables, but that is one of the variables that I think was integral for our pre-order success. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting idea. So I, I've, I've looked into... You know, obviously, the the value of certain interactions with an email, right? So, an, an open is obviously a, a good starting point. If you can get a click, it's good. If you can get a reply, yeah, that's that's quite good. A, a high signal for for ESPs. But also, if you start that off quite at, at an early stage, you almost like build up your reputation as a a conversational email account. Yeah, no, it's a feedback loop, not yeah. something that. Yeah, not not something that just lands in someone's inbox and they and they just ignore it. I mean, even if someone wanted to reply to your email, but it was in their promotions tab, they're not going to reply to your email. So you have to start that from the beginning. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. One thing I wanted to talk about was uh, like product warnings, and I suppose like you using the product as intended. Or yeah, how how do you make sure people achieve success with the product uh-huh. without I guess, potentially overdoing it or overusing it. Yeah. So that's super important. Um, so first of all, no one is going to read your warnings. I think the, 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 the event that most illustrated this for me was when I actually came out with our first product in my first company, which was the beat buddy was a drum machine and a guitar pedal that we came out with in 2013 and people 
uh, and we worked really hard on a quick start guide. And it was on, as soon as you open the box, it's the first thing you see. And it says in giant letters, please read important. Yeah. And I was watching unboxing videos on YouTube and I saw a guy being like, I finally got it. It's finally here. He un takes over the thing. Please read. Eh. He tosses it off camera. Readings for losers. And then he goes in and starts, you know, experimenting with the product and making mistakes and stuff like that. So, so if you think that you're going to be able to reach people through reading, that is definitely not the case. And so specifically with InstaFloss, this was really driven home to me in a whole other way because when I was experimenting with the prototypes before we were doing our human trials and stuff like that, I was just using it myself using various forms. And because it was an early prototype, instead of having the final device with the little reservoir of water that we currently have that gives you a floss, I was just using the big tub, you know, and this gave me infinite water to have an infinite amount of flossing. And so I would use the flossing for like two to three minutes at a time, probably multiple times a day. But if you do the math, InstaFloss provides you a full two-minute floss in 10 seconds. So every 10 seconds is two-minute equivalent. So if I floss for two minutes, that's 120 seconds, which is 24 minutes. If I floss for three minutes, that's 36 minutes of flossing. And if I'm flossing for 36 minutes at a time, multiple times a day, that is a terrible amount of overflossing. And I was doing that, and like my gums started hurting, and I was like, I should know more than anybody that this is a really bad idea. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I, I've read everything that has been published on water flossing in the last 50 years. I've read every article. We've been running our own experiments. We've been designing this thing for five years. We're at the time we we're gearing up for human trials and, and, you know, and, and now we've done them. But like, if there's anyone who should have known that you're not supposed to do that, it should be the person who created the product. And I still did it. So like, if you have something that feels good or there's something that just feels like a natural inclination, people are going to do it. Even people who know better, they're just going to follow like, oh, that feels nice. I'm going to continue doing this. So yeah. I realized that like, if I was being lulled into this, this mistake of overflossing, which is a kind of a funny problem to have most people, you know, under floss overflossing is a thing very rare, but 36 minutes at a time is <laughs> overflossing. Yeah. I, I can't imagine many people are out there flossing for 36 minutes with, with normal kind of yeah you know what's interesting is that it is in the literature and they're like it is it is like a known thing but then again it, it's it's not like um you know it's not one of those it's not a common thing it's like people who go to the doctor because they're, they're i don't know they can't help but eat to paint off the walls like you know it exists but so so what i realized we had to do is we had to build in safeguards so Right now, there's an LED on the InstaFloss that blinks green when you're supposed to floss. It's a one-second blink for every sorry, a, a blink for every second, and then as soon as the ten seconds are up, the device stops flossing and it blinks yellow. Yellow means slow down. So you can fill it up, you know, with water ten times in a row, and you know, ignore the blinking and the stopping ten times in a row, yeah. but what it does is it, is it puts a stop. It interrupts what is an automatic behavior. And it's the automatic behavior that you want to stop and have it built in. It's like if there was a, if you made a chip bag and you're like, oh, people are going to eat too many potato chips. It's going to be bad for their health. And, you know, the issue with potato chips is you mindlessly keep doing it. If you can take the bag away after 10 chips, 
Sure, people can go and start it up again, but you're going to stop most of the mindless behavior. And it's the mindless behavior that you need to, that you need to build into the product. Because yeah, if people are thinking, they're not going to, they're not going to do bad things. But the problem is they're not thinking. Yeah. So you, it's, it means that they've got to consciously take the action to restart the process again. You move it from, right. so it's, yeah. If you had a chip bag that sealed itself after, after you'd removed a certain amount of chips or a certain amount of weight, mm-hmm. you know you are doing the wrong thing exactly. by reopening that bag straight away and, and taking more chips out. I suppose a slight difference is you may not know the problem with reflossing. Right, right. So, 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 so you, you get you get that warning in the product, which which stops flossing, and you're like, well, the, you know, I guess you, you might think there must be a reason it's stopped. But if you've never, you know, pe- people know that eating a massive bag of chips every day would make you fat. Right. And people generally, generally don't want that. But if they've not had that experience that you had, <laughs> you know, I, you know, I can see, especially early on when using the product, right? If that 10 seconds, you, if you don't know how fast to move the device around your mouth, mm-hmm. you might get halfway and it stops and you go, well, okay, I'll just, I'll just restart it and do the, do the rest. Right. And then you do that every day. And then even just doing that, I suppose you are overflossing, right? Well, so, I mean, that's, that's certainly um, not as bad as if you are mindlessly doing it for three minutes at a time. Yeah. You know, it, it's okay if you, if you, instead of two minutes flossing for the first time using it, you flossed for four minutes. Like, okay, that's too much. Don't do it. But nothing bad is going to happen. And it, will, it trains the user how t- the correct pacing, how, how long to use the, the, how quickly to move the device, how long it should take and when to stop. And those are the important things. And the, and the beautiful thing about it is it interrupts automatic thought and it does it without reading. Now there is reading also, but the reading as we have seen is, is certainly not sufficient. Yeah, I mean, you're always going to get some people who will read the, the box, the manual twice. They will set the device up, read the manual again before they start to use it. But yes, I, I can imagine I'm the sort of person who, I mean, well, I know because I've, I never read a manual, right? Like, um, unless I've really got no idea how to set something up. Yeah, and most electronics, I just no. I, I, I mean, these aren't dangerous things to be using, but like you know, a- any earbuds, right? I'm not going to use the manual. I'm pretty confident, and you could send me any new set of earbuds. I'm going to be able to connect it to my phone and use it, right? Without without reading the instruction manual, and I think maybe. That, that feeling probably applies to pretty much anything else you receive as well. And you think, well, how hard can this be, right? Yeah. I mean, especially if it's something that you, you know, is, is, is in of a similar paradigm to anything else you've used. You feel like I've already read the manual, so to speak. You know, I should know how to do this. And yeah, I know how to use an electric toothbrush. Therefore, I should know how to use a like, automatic flosser. Right. Exactly. So that's something that we have to interrupt. Well, what's interesting, actually, on, on the people who read the manual, is it in my in my first company, Singular Sound, by and large, we found, and we actually like did some of that analysis on, on customer emails to to test this. We found that German customers, by and large, read the manual, and American customers, by and large, never opened the thing. Having having worked with with Germany quite a bit, yeah, that doesn't surprise me. <laughs> Yeah, cool. Is there anything else you wanted to talk about related to the product? I mean, there's there's so much I could talk about, you know, on on in terms of product development, you know, and what we had to do in order to see if it worked. 
the sort of you know th things you know the like bumps along the ride in the development so starting on whether it's just engineering doing it on yourself flossing pigs for example was part of the developmental process before we actually went into humans to see how deep we were penetrating under gums because pig flesh is actually very similar to human flesh the the human trials and then the sort of like the five year long developments of of the device which is way longer than i ever thought it would take and i was like okay it's going to be two years and and yeah, it does does seem quite well i mean i've i've not done product development like that so i, I wouldn't know that it makes it sound like it, you know plus side it's something you can talk about right with your messaging right and we spent five years developing this that's you know it's a good amount of thoughts gone into that product if you said you know I had this idea 30 days ago, and now I've released it to market. <laughs> like, mm, how, how reliable is this thing going to be? How safe is it? So it's de definitely a plus point, but I can imagine it's also slightly frustrating. Oh, yeah. As, <laughs> as the developer, like having to spend that much time on it. Yeah, no, I mean, and, and uh, you know, it has been, has been quite a, a wild ride getting, getting it to, to the point where it's at, where now we're going to be releasing it within a, a matter of months. I'm actually going where manufacturing in Guadalajara, Mexico. So we're North American made. And I'm traveling there in, in about three weeks to oversee the first production. So that's exciting. Should be pretty exciting. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. So just before we finish up, is it if you could pick the brains of anyone in the e-commerce or, or marketing world or you know someone out just out a particular brand, uh, who who would it be? If I had to choose anyone in the e-commerce world specifically, it would probably be the Harmon brothers. They really seem to be attuned into what gets people to click, specifically with video. I mean, their campaigns have been really, they, they started their, they started their first marketing campaign. I believe it was with the, uh, the Aura brush, which is a device that you use to scrape your tongue and clean your tongue. And what they did is they, instead of like a fancy production and like actors and whatever and CGI, they went to parks and they gave people toothbrush and they're like, and toothpaste and like, hey, brush your, brush your teeth, brush your tongue, do as good of a job as you can. And they filmed them doing this. They're like, okay, is that as good as you can get? All right. Now use this device after you've done that and scrape your tongue. And they scraped it and, and it's like, oh my God, look at all that gum. And, you know, they just went to random people to random people. And, and this was like the proof of the product and to me that was just so brilliant that like sometimes something you film on your cell phone will do far better for your product than the most advanced hollywood it, it just looks so much more genuine doesn't it it does it, you know doesn't look staged and it's yeah it's and it proves it right there real yeah it's like yeah oh you thought you you thought you got rid of all the gunk no you didn't here you go <laughs> Yeah. I mean, yeah, it, it proves that, you know, all those people who think, oh, why do, do I really need that? Like an additional product? Can't I just use my electric toothbrush on my tongue yeah. for a bit? Surely that would do the job, right? Exactly. So being able to just go up to people in the street and, you know, I guess some people might still say it's staged, but it's going to be some good editing right? Uh, to, to be able to stage that, right? I mean, they show, they, uh, and perhaps this is like gets back into the disgusting, but they show the gunk. And yeah. so it's like, if it's staged, it's like all sorts of sleight of hand and you could experiment it with yourself and, and see if, if that works for you. So, you know, I thought that was brilliant. That was their start. And they had had a series of, of hit marketing campaigns after that. So it really, 
Uh, so I feel like their their empathy into the mind of the consumer is definitely spot on. And so what they think or what they feel gets you know people going, gets people clicking, gets people purchasing. And I would just love to have a conversation with people with that levels of intuition. Yeah, awesome. And finally, if you've got one last piece of advice for listeners. I would say don't trust your gut. <laughs> that might be... That might be like the opposite of what many people will tell you. Sure, you sure. There are many times you have to follow a feeling if that's all you've got going. But if you have the opportunity to put certain things to the test, I mean, certainly in, this, in the course of this conversation, I've I've talked about a number of times where you know I thought I was like, oh, showing the scientific studies is going to help or so on, and it, and it certainly did not. Well, the most amusing thing I could think of in terms of an experiment that showed that the intuition was wrong was. This was for my first company, Singular Sound. We were doing email marketing, and we started off with you know the very typical corporate like images, banners. You know, pretty much you, what you're receiving is like a flyer in your email. And slowly, we started running A/B tests, being like, well, maybe if it looks more like a regular email, it would get a higher click-through rate or seem more genuine, etc. And we, so we started doing these tests. And we saw the more and more genuine we made it look, the higher our our conversion rate. And eventually one question was posed, which was, you know, what would be super genuine, like definitely coming from a human and not from a corporation or a machine is if there were some typos in there. And I was like, this is ridiculous. This is unprofessional. Like this, there's no way this is going to work. And, and there's like, no, 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 but like, come on, let's just run an AB test. Let's just see, you know, just, just for the sake of curiosity, our conversions went up I think it was like 17% from typos. And so there's a few typos. I was like, mind blown, you know, like sometimes you have to just trust the data. You have to, you have to just follow your curiosity. <laughs> I, I do get it. I mean, there were times when I've been writing, you know, outreach messages on LinkedIn or something. Mm -hmm. And I've, you know, hit, hit two keys at once misspelled someone's name or you know added a letter or we'll put a character on afterwards and as i'm tidying it up i'm thinking do you know what it does show that i have written this message right and i know that's a big issue for people right that, because there's a lot of automation out there sure. so that kind of proves that i did not automate this message yeah you probably could automate that though by no absolutely you can but Putting like name, a special character, just sending that. You know, one week after this podcast is released, like all marketers are throwing typos <laughs> in there. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it's something that also has to be heavily context dependent. So this is not an experiment I'm willing to do for Instafloss because we are a medical device. And even if it does seem genuine, do you really want a person who can't spell? <laughs> are you going to trust them with your device? Attention to detail. Exactly. It's like... No. So, so it is context dependent and you have to think about that. But the point is just to illustrate that just because you think one thing would or wouldn't work doesn't mean it will. And the only thing that for especially people in marketing that would ever reveal anything close to the truth is large amounts of data. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. All right. Thank you so much. If anyone wants to reach out and find out more, what's the best way of doing that? Go to instafloss.com. There's a contact us page. If you want to reach me specifically, just mention it, Ellie Packhouse, and the email will get to me. Awesome. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you.
So obviously, as Eli mentioned, doing proper research and development is going to be key for any business. If you don't understand the market, you're going to struggle to develop the right product for it. And you're definitely going to struggle to, to actually market and sell that product to them. Crowdfunding is a great option to get going. You can even use it to pay for the initial development and, and stock, really, you know, provided you can be fast enough, of course. You don't want backers having to wait years for you to develop that product. But if you've done the initial steps and you think you're on the right path with the, with the product itself, you can essentially run a pre-order through these uh, through these sites. Finally, really interesting to hear about some of the tests they ran with Instaplos, particularly how the scientific approach actually led to worse conversions. I, I honestly would have expected it to be the other way around, especially for this type of product where it's got health-related um, benefits and, and potential issues. If you'd like to hear more from Eli, you can find him on LinkedIn. Let me know who you'd like to hear from over the next few months, whether it's a specific guest, brand, or just a particular area of marketing. But until then, keep those customers clicking.